Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 58 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're starting the episode actually by alluding to a different podcast. This one is by a man named Malcolm Gladwell. You might have heard of him. He's a pretty famous author. His podcast is called Revisionist History. I was recently listening to an episode of his podcast, and I learned about something called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Malcolm Gladwell calls his podcast episode The Department of Physical Hygiene. I'll include a link in the show notes. And yes, it's all about something called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Right around World War II, I actually think it was during World War II, there were a group of young men who, for one reason or another, couldn't fight in the war. They wanted to participate in some other way. And a very famous scientist named Ansel Keys convinced them to participate in this experiment where for about three months, the men had their diets and exercise slightly adjusted so that they would hit some sort of, they call it like a balanced weight. So the men who were maybe a little overweight were encouraged to lose a few pounds. The men who were a little underweight were encouraged to gain a few pounds until they kind of hit this median normal weight for their height. And then commenced a starvation period. For six months, these men were fed what is called a starvation diet, barely enough calories to survive. The goal of the experiment was for over the six-month period for the men to lose 25% of their weight. So for someone who's maybe six feet tall and weighs 190 pounds, the goal of the experiment was for that man to lose 47 pounds and drop down to a weight of 143 from 190 to 143 in six months. Now, The long-term goal of the study was to help people all over the world who are dealing with some sort of starvation, to understand how to prevent starvation in the first place, to understand how to best cure starvation, what nutrients are most important, how the body reacts to a regular diet again, how to best put on weight, what organs are most damaged by starvation, and what organs need to be carefully looked at when reintroducing nutrients to the body, all that sort of thing. Now, That experiment probably couldn't take place today. It's just a bit too gruesome and a bit too painful to starve someone for six months to get them to the point where the real study could begin. One of the things in the podcast that most caught my eye and caught my mind's attention is how the men in the experiment, how their mental states changed. One of the biggest ones, for example, many of the men developed food obsession during their starvation period. It's all they could think about. They really didn't think about interpersonal relationships. They didn't care too much for the kind of things that we occupy our normal days with. They would just think about food. During the experiment, the men had to walk in pairs around the city of Minnesota. They had to walk 22 miles a week as part of the exercise to help them lose the weight during the starvation period. And they'd often walk to restaurants or diners and simply sit there and watch people eat. That was part of their entertainment, or at the very least, That's what their brains wanted them to do, was to watch people eat. Some of the men started collecting cookbooks during the experiment. And interestingly, some of the men never stopped collecting cookbooks. They had this food obsession for the rest of their lives. Quick sidebar, listening to Malcolm Gladwell's 
episode, I thought of my dog, Sadie, who we got as a starving and nursing mother dog. She was found on the streets of Houston, severely malnourished, and she's now a perfectly healthy dog. She is also the most food-motivated dog I've ever met. She has an obsession with food. She likes to watch me eat dinner. She, you know, any little hint that she might be getting fed, she gets excited for. Not every dog does that, but a dog who starved on the streets develops that kind of food obsession. And similarly, as we learned in this podcast, people who are starved develop that food obsession too. And for some of them, it never leaves. Towards the end of the podcast episode, one audio clip in particular really struck a chord with me. It was some testimony given later in life by one of the study's participants. And, and this was from a man who, according to testimony from the many participants in the study, this one man was someone that the rest of the participants looked up to. They saw him as, as noble. They saw him as righteous. He was well-educated. He was well put together. They saw him as, as a person worth emulating. But I want you to listen to this man's testimony right now, or you could put it another way, his confession to how his mindset and how his brain chemistry changed over the course of the study. I'll tell you a, a, na a nasty moment. I was walking along and I obviously had a buddy, but I don't know who it was. And um, it was deep into the semi-starvation and um, we were tired. When they crossed the street, they didn't have the energy to take the half step up onto the sidewalk. We were tired uh, and, and weak. And so we were standing at a corner waiting for a light or something. And a kid came along on a bicycle. And he was really moving, pumping away and going, <laughs> I said, I wonder where he's going. And then I said, said to myself, I know where he's going. He's going home for supper. And I'm not. And then for a very brief, I hope it was brief, moment, I suddenly hated that, that boy. And that, I hate at this point to tell you this, because uh, it doesn't speak very well for me. Um, but I, I remembered it with, I guess, horror that, that I could feel such a thing. So utterly irrational, but, but there it was. And uh, you ask an experience that I remember, I sure remember that. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or, or that I should have asked you or you'd like to, to add that seems relevant? You should have asked me why I'm missing fingers on my left hand. Okay. I keep saying to myself that this was because I um, was so weak and I was chopping wood and I got the um, axe caught up in the tree and I didn't have an, a rapid enough re reaction time to pull my hand away so I removed some fingers. He was at the house of two elderly ladies in Minneapolis who had befriended some of the subjects. Leg and his buddy would go and watch the women eat, then go outside to split wood, to steel themselves against the temptation to take any of the women's food. I recognize that a human being can go through a period of mental illness. I think I was mentally ill. 
was I mentally ill at the time that I removed the fingers? I don't know. I like to think that I wasn't. I like to think it was an accident. I'm not going to sit here and categorically say that I didn't do it on purpose. Severe trauma, severe anxiety, severe pain, mental pain or physical pain, these can make us think in irrational ways. Clearly, this guy who's been starving for months and then sees a strong, young boy riding a bicycle, he thinks irrationally in this moment when he wants to reach out, when he wants to harm the boy, when he feels like he hates that boy. That's an irrational thought. And now he's giving a confession as an old man. He feels guilty for it. I don't think he should because he, he realizes that it was an irrational thought. And it's interesting, a little bit scary to think that you and I and everyone we know, we have that side of our brain. We might not like to admit it, but it's there. That you or I or any other human we know, when we're put in dire scenarios, we think differently, we act differently. We know it's not rational, or at least in hindsight, we know it's not rational. But in the moment, it feels like that's the right thing to do. And that right there is a powerful investing lesson. So let's switch gears. Let's travel to Johnsonburg. Johnsonburg is a quiet town in the Allegheny National Forest that's in Northwest Pennsylvania here in the USA. Now, Johnsonburg is best known, at least regionally, for their lumber industry and the, the associated paper mill that's in the town of Johnsonburg. But Johnsonburg made national news in the spring of 2022 for a very different and somewhat disturbing reason. There was a, a recently constructed highway bypass in Johnsonburg. Now, a bypass is a, a bridge that's built above or around, usually some combination of both, built above or around a village or town. You've probably driven over thousands of bypasses in your life, even if you didn't know it. It's a highway bridge over a residential area. The bypass in Johnsonburg made national news because dozens of deer were leaping off of the bypass, not all at the same time, but over the course of days and weeks. They were leaping off the bypass and dropping to their death onto populated parts of the town. So these deer, they walk out onto the miles-long bypass, but they aren't quite smart enough, unfortunately, to find their way back off the bypass. And eventually they get spooked, perhaps by traffic or perhaps by some panic from their predicament. They're stuck out there, and a certain survival mechanism kicks in. The deer, they think, well, I can either stay trapped on this bypass and surely die, or maybe I can jump and maybe I'll survive. It's easy for us big-brained humans to say, well, how about a third option where you just walk off the bypass? But deer aren't equipped to understand traffic patterns or bridge construction or probability theory. In their plight, in their fear, they rely on instinct, and the only sliver of survival they think will come from jumping, even though it's clearly a self-destructive behavior. So when zoomed out, of course, it's stupid. When zoomed in, at least into the deer's brain, it appears like it's the rational thing to do. And so the deer jump. So let's keep that story in mind. A reader on my blog, On the Best Interest, his name was Phil. Maybe he was from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. He wrote in and he said, Jesse, 
I don't understand why you hold any bonds in your portfolio. To be honest with you, I don't know why anyone holds bonds. So can you please explain the problem with a 100% stock portfolio? It's a great question, Phil. You're not the first to ask. You won't be the last to ask. We know that over time, stocks outperform bonds. So why hold any bonds at all? And I'll start by saying that some people do recommend 100% stock portfolios. Their rationale is pretty simple. A 100% stock portfolio has always outperformed any portfolio with bonds as long as you zoom out to a long enough time span. But the key word there is over the long run. As long as you zoom out long enough, all stocks make sense. So if you're young enough to invest your money and, you know, pull a Rip Van Winkle, go to sleep for 30 years, investing in 100% stocks might be the right allocation for you. Some people are fine with a multi-decade hibernation of kind of avoiding their account statements and, and not getting spooked by the concept of losing money or the prospect of losing money. But most people don't live in that world. An important question to ask in portfolio construction is, what is your risk tolerance? Or in plain English, how much money can you lose before you get nauseous? We each have a unique answer to that question. And more importantly, our answers in theory might be different than our answers in practice. So I'm going to say that again because it's pretty important. Your risk tolerance in theory might be different than your risk tolerance in practice. Take Sally, for example. Sally believes in theory, based on paper, based on what she's heard, she thinks she can stomach a 20% loss to her portfolio before feeling even a hint of stress. She knows that the market has dropped before. She knows that bear markets happen, and she's aware of the fact that a 20% drop in her portfolio is not only a probability, it's almost an inevitability over the course of her investing career. 20%, no worries. Once 30% down, she'd probably lose some sleep. And if she ever got 40% down off her all-time high, she'd begin to fight that urge to panic and to sell completely. So something near a 70-30 portfolio is a good starting point for Sally. That's 70% stocks and 30% bonds. The reason why is because we can just look back at history and say, how has a 70-30 portfolio performed over time? 70-30 portfolio's worst full year occurred in 1931, that was during the Great Depression, and it suffered a 31% loss that year. The 100% stock portfolio that the question asker, Phil, is interested in that suffered a 43% loss in 1931 and actually up to an 89% peak to trough drawdown. So again, 43%, that was over the course of a full year when there was some time to recover. But the actual high to the low, the peak to the trough of a 100% stock portfolio was 89%. That occurred in 1929. Now, in order to reduce the volatility in Sally's portfolio, we add bonds to the stocks or some other low-risk asset, maybe cash could work too. Now that ballasts out Sally's portfolio to meet her specific risk tolerance. It's still possible that she'll lose money in a 70-30 portfolio, but not as much as she would in a 100% stock portfolio. Now, in theory, that 70-30 portfolio for Sally makes sense. But what if she finds herself in a year like 2022, and at one point during the year, her 70-30 portfolio was down 20%, not the 30% that she thought would make her panic, only 20%. But what if she actually starts panicking at 20% down? You know, Warren Buffett said, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. 
That's one of his most famous quotes. The tide going out, of course, is a metaphor for the market dropping. And swimming naked is a metaphor for someone being unprepared for that eventuality to happen. Only in market downturns does theory get put to the test. Can you stomach what you said you could stomach? Can Sally stomach what she thought she could stomach? She might only be down 20% in a year like 2022, but she could be freaking out. And what do we do? How do we help? Well, if we need to, hopefully we can educate her and then if needed, reallocate her assets. We need to learn about Sally. Why is she freaking out? Can we teach her enough about the long-term trends of the stock market to help her feel at ease? That's actually a really good place to start. We could remind Sally that if she zooms out enough, here's what a 70-30 portfolio does over five-year time spans, over 10-year, over 20-year time spans. Yes, this one year is a bit chaotic and a bit painful, but it was one of the possibilities that we knew about when we began investing in a 70-30 portfolio. If you stick with it, here's where you'll end up in the long run. We can educate Sally, and oftentimes education makes investors feel a lot better about where they stand. If the education doesn't really work, if it doesn't sink in, and if Sally says, yeah, I hear the words you're saying, I still can't handle it. Well, then we might need to reallocate Sally's assets. Maybe 70-30 wasn't right for her in the first place, and she needs to be in something more like a 60-40 or 50-50 portfolio. Maybe she needs to diversify even further into alternative assets or something like that, simply to kind of detangle and uncorrelate the assets in her portfolio even more. No matter what, we need to avoid a situation, avoid a scenario where Sally sells completely. There's this quote that lots of investors use. They say, the only people who get hurt on the roller coaster are those who jump off. Now, this quote begs the question, just how scary is a roller coaster that impels someone into jumping off of it? And more importantly, though, how do we reduce that scariness? How can we prevent people from jumping off their portfolios? How do we preempt the survival mechanism that says, if I don't sell right now, I might never get another chance. This portfolio is headed to zero and I am jumping off of the ship before it goes there. Mammal brains are similar to one another. We share the same amygdala that controls our fight or flight response. The same impulse that pushes, say, a deer to jump from a bypass. It also pushes Sally to panic sell her portfolio. Sally sells out of fear, not stupidity. That fear is a survival mechanism. Fear's goal, much like pain's goal, is to motivate us into an action that remedies the fear. If you're scared, well, you run or you fight. If you touch a hot stove, you reflexively pull your hand away. To intentionally endure such pain, it does seem inhuman, requiring some level of mental fortitude to bypass the very brain circuitry that makes us alive in the first place. In that context, Sally selling her portfolio or a deer jumping off of a bypass, it seems kind of rational. Is it also nearsighted and myopic? Of course it is. It's easy for us to see that short-sightedness on the outside looking in, but it doesn't feel myopic for Sally in the heat of the moment or for those deer. They say it's hard to see the picture when you're standing inside the frame. When your portfolio is down 20%, you are standing inside that frame. It's hard to see the full picture. Similarly for the deer, they just see the frame of them stuck on a bypass. Big friend of the best interest, Howard Marks, who's a very famous investor, he has his own appropriate quote on the topic. 
Howard says, we have to practice defensive investing since many of the outcomes are likely to go against us. It's more important to ensure survival under negative outcomes than it is to guarantee maximum returns under favorable ones. It's more important to ensure survival under negative outcomes than it is to guarantee maximum returns under favorable ones. While Marx is referring to avoiding too much risk, we can also apply to his idea to avoiding self-destructive behaviors. For a deer to avoid self-destruction, we'd say, don't walk out on a bypass in the first place, if only they'd listen to us. And to Sally or to any other investor, we'd say, don't take on so much risk that you'll panic sell when markets aren't cooperative. History tells us time and again that the survival instinct to panic sell is a self-destructive instinct. When zoomed out, panic selling is stupid. Of course it is. Just look at the market history. Why would you ever sell knowing that we'd get to where we are today? But when you zoom in, in that moment, when the markets have dropped 30% off their all-time high and you don't know what the future holds, selling, panic selling, it might feel rational in that moment. We'd all do better to remind ourselves that humans are frequently irrational. And because humans are frequently irrational, it begs the question, not if Sally will panic sell, but when Sally will panic sell. And that brings us back to Phil's original question. That brings us back to bonds or to any other lower risk asset class. The rationale for holding bonds or for holding cash for alternatives for diversification the rationale for these non-stock asset classes is to prevent self-destructive panic selling. It's one thing to admonish investors and say, don't be stupid, don't sell your stocks, the market will eventually recover. But good luck looking a panicked investor in the eye and accusing them of stupidity for selling. Your accusation simply won't work. Their amygdala, the most irrational part of their brain, is in control in that moment, and it's begging them to pull their hand off the stove. Can you blame them for listening? Our best and only option as investors is to prevent panic in the first place. Some pain is okay, but panic is not. They say the true cost of long-term investing is a psychological cost because you need to endure some pain, but you need to prevent that panic. You need to build a portfolio that meets your goals in the good times, but won't mentally break you in the bad times. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Some of you might recognize that Morgan Freeman impression as the litany against fear from the famous book and now movie Dune. While perhaps a bit dramatic for a personal finance podcast, it is actually a pretty interesting quote. Fear is the mind killer. Fear really does mess with our brains. And another part of that quote is once the fear is past me, I will look at its path and only I will remain. And similarly, if you let a market panic or a bear market or a market crash, when those bad times have gone past, you can turn your eye to your Vanguard, your Fidelity, your Schwab accounts, and only you and your portfolio fully intact will remain. 
changing gears a little bit here. Now, some of you know that by day, I work for a fiduciary financial planning and wealth management firm in Rochester. You know, we, we help people, we help individuals, we help families plan their financial futures. And explaining that previous concept is extremely important. Explaining how we design portfolios to ensure that they can be stuck with for the long run to explain why we diversify in order to keep risk lower. That's a really important part of the job. And sometimes what that means is that there are big headlines in the news that we're worried about things like debt ceilings or interest rate hikes and all that kind of stuff. And as investment managers, we have to decide whether to take action or not in the portfolio. And oftentimes, because of the work done beforehand, because of the diversification present, the correct answer, the rational answer is, we're not going to do anything right now. We designed the portfolio for this. It's meant to withstand this, and it will withstand this. And once we get one or two or five years out from now, we're going to look back on this time and realize that doing nothing was the right thing to do. Now, one quote that I I recently heard, and I'm adopting it myself because I think it's a terrific quote to explain that, though, is that inaction is not the same as inactivity. By choosing not to act from an investment point of view, by choosing not to make any changes, that's not the same as sitting idly, twiddling your thumbs, doing nothing at all. You know, humans, like all creatures, great and small, we're biased towards action. It's so ingrained in us, in fact, that occasionally our brains override conscious thought and and force us to act. We talked about that before with the stove. When you touch a hot stove, your brain instinctively and impulsively screams out to you, act right now, remove yourself from the source of that pain. It doesn't even really, scream. it's just instantaneous. It's not even screaming at you. You don't have a choice. Impulse takes over and you act. Now, that same bias that helps us survive, run from the tiger, block that projectile that's heading towards your face, that instinct, that bias, it is purely harmful to the long-term investor. As an investor, inaction, inaction is your friend. But it's important, paradoxically, that we differentiate inaction from inactivity. Now, John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, he famously quipped, The the rule for the investor should be, and we all think about, and in effect, the financial system is built on this, and when something monstrous happens, big, noisy, uh, affects the market greatly on a very short-term basis, The answer is don't just stand there, do something. But the real answer is don't do something, just stand there. Whereas don't get captivated by the emotions of the moment. You heard him right. Don't do something. Don't bias yourself towards action. Just stand there. Actively choose not to act. To understand why, we simply have to consult historical precedent. First, why might an investor want to take drastic action? We know that by now, to avoid pain. And what's the cause of that pain? Well, of course, it's a downward bear market where we see our account values dropping by 10 or 20 or 30% or more. And our brains instinctively think, do something, avoid that pain. You're exposing yourself to the painful stock market. So stop that. Sell your investments before the pain gets worse. That's the normal human response. Identify the cause of the pain and reel back from it. But stock market history shows us how harmful that behavior is to your long-term portfolio performance. 
Selling because of losses, it serves to lock in those losses. That's bad. And then you, like the rest of us humans, won't have the gumption to buy back into the market to participate in its eventual recovery in the eventual rally. Action during a bear market is an investor's enemy. Inaction is our friend. But inaction isn't the same as inactivity. It takes conscious effort to choose inaction. It takes conscious effort to rebalance your portfolio, maintaining a predetermined asset allocation, even during turbulent markets. It's boring and simple, but you have to do it. You need to actively choose to keep your cool. The secret of great investing is temperament. It's hard to stay calm during a bear market. Our brains want to panic. We want to sell to survive. We want to jump off that bridge like the deer. You need to actively choose not to. It's a bit like meditation. You're choosing when you meditate to sit there and do nothing. You are paradoxically actively choosing inaction. The metaphor gets even better though, because as anyone who's ever meditated will tell you, meditation is hard. It's really challenging to quiet your brain and be still. After all, we're all biologically wired for action. We're wired to think, to worry, to plan, everything except to sit and be still. Investors choosing inaction, it works exactly the same way. We must quiet that worried voice in our heads. My retirement account just dropped by how much? We need to quiet that voice. We need to choose to wait out the market's storm. Calm waters do await us if only we wait for them. Day after day, we must choose to wait, to stay calm, to be patient. Don't do something, just sit there. But don't confuse that inaction with inactivity. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.